Okay, here we go. This is Ephesians, uh, the seventh installment in our, uh, in our series. And you know what? The, the summer is coming to an end. Uh, I imagine we'll just carry on this, this Ephesians study into the fall. So, uh, you know, hang with me a little bit longer, at least a few more weeks. It's going to take us a few more, few more weeks to get through Ephesians. But, um, uh, and also, I do have these, I am recording these. So if, if you want to catch up on or go back and, and uh, listen to any of the previous uh, lessons that we've done on this, I can share those with you. And usually I send those out in the, the weekly email too. But uh, I, I think I've shared with you before that Tracy and I, my wife, have long wanted to build a screened-in porch in our backyard. And uh, we, we've been in the house that we're in now for about 18 years, and we haven't had a chance to get around to it. There's a deck out there right now. Uh, and, and I would say it's an average size deck. You know, it's not, it's not a monstrosity. It's not something that you think, oh my goodness, look at that. You've probably seen a, a thousand of these, of these decks. It's on level one, so it's not even up high, two stories up in the air. It's just level one, so it's nothing outrageous. But this deck is now rapidly showing signs of, of age, and it's starting to fall apart. So, so we thought maybe we'd start collecting a few quotes to see what it would cost to build us uh, a new one. Now, many of, you, many of you know I love doing these kind of things myself. I love do-it-yourself projects, and I'm always uh, getting in trouble with these uh, because I think, you know, well, I can do this. And, and usually I can, but it usually takes me two or three times longer than I anticipated. You know, the months can turn into years sometimes. And so my wife is very protective of my time. She knows that I can take on these projects and then, and then feel like, oh, this is going to take me forever, right? And so let's start collecting quotes just to see where we're at. And so this is the second quote, the second quote that I got, okay? Uh, this guy came, he's very professional, came over to the house, and uh, he had all sorts of, of really nice marketing materials, glossy literature, you know? And uh, even offered me all sorts of like samples and say, here, this is the type of material we will use here. And this is the type of material we will use here. And so all these things that he's telling me, this is where my mind goes. These are, these are really nice materials. This is a very nice presentation. But somehow this brochure that I'm holding in my hand is built into the cost that he's going to quote me. This costs, marketing costs something, right? It's not for free. Someone, somewhere, has to pay for this. It's not going to be me, right? <laughs> now, that's where my mind goes. That, that, that's the association I have with marketing materials. Marketing costs something, and it's eventually going to, that's true for any product that you engage in. If there's marketing behind it, you're paying for that. You're paying for that somehow, some way. So he proceeds to tell me all the things they can do for me. Yeah, and I got to asking him, uh, so are we talking about pressure-treated pine wood or, or something else? Oh, we, we only do, we don't do good, better, and best here. We're just going to offer you best. And so when I hear something like that, I have another immediate association. It's the sound of a cash register, <laughs> you know, ka-ching, you know, ka-ching, as, as, he's, uh, as he's continuing on with his, his presentation. Uh, and near the conclusion of his presentation, he begins to tell me that his company works with all the best lenders, that they have numerous, <laughs> they have numerous finance options. To my mind, this is not he's saying something directly, but here's the association that my mind makes. You're telling me that this deck is going to take me many, many, many years to pay for. That's what you're trying to say without actually saying what you're trying to say. There's, and, and then I even at one point noticed, because he then began to, to, to work out the quote right there in our, in our kitchen. He sat down on the counter, and he starts writing, and I'm watching. I'm watching the line items that he's writing down uh, on the, and I see one line item, and he puts, 
what I assumed was a price next to it, and I thought, no, that must be like a product code number. <laughs> that must be a, a UPC number or a SKU, because no way he's quoting dollars there for one line item. There's one line item that, he's, that, he's, that he wrote down there. I'm like, that, that can't be. And so even, even as he's doing that, I started, you know, surreptitiously texting my wife, who's just, you know, in the next room right there listening to all this, and I was saying, this deck is going to cost $1 million. <laughs> do you, know, you want to know what the quote was? You know, for an average size deck, an average size desk. We, now we wanted it to be screened in, okay? Screened in porch, average size. What? This is like the Price is Right. I love the Price is Right. Wait, is this just for the deck, or is this for the? Okay, this is what I found out later. Okay, is that he presents the quote to me, and then he says, "This does not include the roof or the screens," which is kind of important on a screened in porch. So this is just this is just the deck. This is just the deck. Just the deck. $110,000. $110,000. And he asked me, and, he, and this, the good news is, is that this is the discounted price. So that if you, if you sign the, the contract in the next seven days, you get this price which reflects a 20% discount. In my mind, I'm thinking, shishing, shishing, shishing. Again, this is all strategy. It's all strategy. It's all, it's all, it's all you know, trying to get you to... Uh, to, and he says, listen, is, is, this, is this quote higher than you anticipated? I said, yeah. <laughs> I said, in fact, it's, it's 10 times higher than the last quote that I got, 10 times. And he said, well, listen, the quote that I just gave you, I, I, I can work with you on that quote. <laughs> Again, he's saying something without saying something. Do you know what he's saying to me there? Do you know what my mind is interpreting there? All kinds of inflated costs built into your quote. If you're willing to work, work with me and bring this, <laughs> are you willing to bring it down $90,000? That's what I wanted to know. Or more, please. Okay, now it may not surprise you to know that I've not called him back, nor has he called me back, okay? And uh, so we're in Ephesians. And, and uh, like the story... <laughs> Like the story I just walked you through, it ties together, it ties together. The passage we're going through, uh, we're going to read today, it's like playing, I mentioned to you in an email, if you're on our email list, there's a word association, okay? When you hear certain things, you think, okay, that means that, what he's really trying to say. Same thing in our passage today, there's specific words that are in our passage today that should be like a game of word association. When you hear it, you think, okay, though he's not explicitly saying something here, Paul, it means something else. It means something else. It has all kinds of Old Testament baggage, you know, attached to it. It's like a locomotive, a locomotive that is the, uh, the, the New Testament. This is a word used in the New Testament. And behind that locomotive are all sorts of boxcars of Old Testament imagery, concepts that are uh, trailing along behind it. Now, before we get to our passage this week, let me remind you of something we talked about last week and even uh, a couple weeks before that. Up to this point in, in the letter, Paul has been building up to this theme that he unveiled at the beginning of chapter 2, which is this. And this is sort of almost kind of like a thesis statement that Paul uses. That you, I know you've heard this verse numerous times, right? For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one, so that no one may boast. Now, that's a hard verse to wrestle with. That's a hard verse to contend with if you have something to do with your own salvation. If salvation is really a product of, of your, your charm, your good looks, your intelligence, your social standing, if you have something to do with that, it's hard to wrestle with this verse because what this verse is telling us, it's, it's not any of those things. 
It's not that. It's the free gift of God. You can't brag about the fact that you're a child of, of the Lord, okay? So you have to keep this theme in, in the back of your minds as we read through the rest of Ephesians because it's almost like this verse is like an anchor to everything else that he starts unfolding throughout Ephesians, okay? So if you haven't already, turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, uh, or you can follow along with me up here. We're going to start in verse 18. And we're going to finish out chapter 2 today. So that's why I say we're only two chapters in uh, to, uh, to Ephesians, so we're, we're probably going to carry this on into the fall. But this is Ephesians 2, 18 to 22, and it says this, For through him, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so that you are no longer strangers and aliens. Remember from last week, he's largely talking to a Gentile audience here. He says, But you're fellow citizens now with the saints and members of the household of God. Choo-choo. A lot of locomotive here with all kinds of baggage. A household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. I'm giving you hints, okay? (laughs) In whom you're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So that's our passage for today. Just four verses. But from those four verses, we're going to take a look at these three words in our word association. No, yep, there it is. I did put them up there. Household, cornerstone, and temple. Household, cornerstone, and temple. Those are the three things we're going to look at today. Uh, Christ's household, Christ is the cornerstone, and, the, and Christ's temple. And again, from these verses, we could pull out all kinds of things. We could spend, you know, weeks alone on, on this, uh, just this much alone. But uh, we're going to try to do this in a reasonable amount of time. So Paul is saying here, in chapter 2, that the Gentiles who look, who look to Christ in faith, right, they have their, their status completely changed. Before Christ, they were alienated from the commonwealth of, of Israel, and for that matter, before, they were, before we were saved, we were also strangers. You and I were also strangers. We were strangers to the, the covenant of promise. Uh, we were without hope. Before Christ, we were, we were without God. Now, after Christ, Paul paints for us a completely different picture. He tells us we're no longer strangers. We're no longer aliens, but we've become fellow citizens. You and I are fellow citizens, saints and members of the household of God. We who are joined to Christ, both Jew and Gentile, are, no, are, are, are now part of, of, the, of the Israel of God. Okay, but notice what Paul says. We're members of the household of God in verse 19. Again, this idea of household, this is not just a clever uh, uh, um, analogy that popped into Paul's head says, you know what, this will work. Whenever, most often, whenever Paul uses any kind of language in his letters, he's pulling something deliberately from the Old Testament to complete the thought that was started in the Old Testament. And household is one of those, one of those words, okay? Household, um, uh, and again, this is really important for any of you that have ever struggled with the idea of infant baptism. Uh, you'll never get there without understanding the significance of how household is used throughout the Old Testament and then into the New especially in the book of Acts. It's deliberate language in there where you start hearing about uh, believe, repent, and be baptized, you and your household. Household, it's not just a convenient word to use there. Again, the apostles, the apostles in the early church are drawing upon language that was established in the Old Testament and bringing it forward. And this is what I love about, this is what I love about our sacraments. This is what I love about infant baptism is that it's not just something that, let's just do this now. It's, it's completing what was, what was established in the Old Testament, bringing forward to the, uh, to the new. But the familial structure, the familial structure of the Old Testament was a big deal. 
the unit of the national life of Israel from the very beginning was found in the family. In the old uh, patriarchal days, each family was complete within itself, the oldest living male being the unquestioned head of the whole. For example, when Abraham was told to, to circumcise his male offspring as a sign of, of God's covenant, he was told to, to circumcise all the males in his household, okay? His household, not, not, not even just those that were directly related to him, but all the males in his household, okay? Remember Joshua and uh, his declaration as they were about to enter into the promised land. This is Joshua from Joshua 24, 15. And it, uh, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in, in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my, same root, same, same word, uh, we will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. So all throughout the Old Testament, it was, the, it was also the, the children. The children would inevitably, inevitably bear the sins of the fathers. Okay, in the Old Testament, human life was, was not a conglomerate of individuals. It wasn't, uh, uh, you know, in recent uh, in decades, we've heard about rugged individualism of, of, uh, of the American way. That's, that's not really the way that it was set up in Israel. It was, a, it was a, uh, a, a collection of households. Households was almost considered the central unit or central focus of the community. Uh, if something happened to the father of that household, it didn't happen to him. It happened to the whole family. Okay, this is why I love the book of Ruth, for instance, because there, that whole concept of the book of Ruth is rooted in a familial connection. It's not, I'm not going to let you go to this foreign land on your own because of family, but because of that connection. You can't go there by your own. We are a family, and so I, where, where you go, I'm going to go. Uh, it was all locked up together in that, that concept. Uh, the father was also the one who provided for the family. He was the one who fed his family, clothed them, and, uh, and met their needs. So given that, do you see what Paul is telling the Gentiles here in chapter 2? And by extension, you and me, okay? He's telling us that both Jew and Gentile are God's children. We are members of his household, okay? So you think about all the, the, the concept of household and, the, and how important it was and how central it was. And, and if you weren't part of a household, you, you know, you, you, were, you were almost hopeless. Again, back to the book of Ruth. That what was so desperate about that situation was that there wasn't that household structure underneath Naomi, okay? It, it, she had to have something in order to survive. And so now Paul is saying you are part of not just a, uh, a, some household, you are part of God's household. That's, that's the household you're part of now. You, you're part of that familial structure, and it's a result of God's mercy in Christ. We're grafted in now under the protection of God's household, and we're entitled to all the benefits therein now. One father, one household that is provided for, that is clothed and protected. Now, I love, I love the biblical portrait that's painted uh, in the adoption process. And this pic picture stands, uh, whether people realize it's happening or not, I especially love the picture that's painted with when someone adopts a child that, that isn't a newborn. Think about this. I had a friend whom, whom I worked with uh, years ago, um, and he and his wife adopted a child. I believe the child was two years old when they, they adopted him. Well, in, in a very non-typical manner, uh, it all happened very quickly. The, the process itself took, took forever. Uh, but once, once they got word that uh, you, you know, this adoption is going through, it was just a matter of a, a couple of weeks, uh, and they had uh, this, this child in, in their home. And uh, 
And this is what's amazing to me. And prior to this, I'd never really contemplated or thought about it. It makes all the sense in the world to me now. But back then, I remember it was this light bulb moment. Uh, when he found out that they were going to be getting this child, I asked him, how does it feel? How does it feel? How does it, how does it compare to having children biologically? You know, because that was the only really thing that I'd contemplated, I guess, to that point. And, uh, and I knew he had biological children. And, and so now they were adopting. And I asked him, do you think you already love him? And his answer was, absolutely, I do. He's my son. He's my son in an instant, just like that. Upon hearing the news that you're receiving this child, he loved that child immediately and fully. And what's so amazing to me about that, especially back then, is this kind of this light bulb moment. When that child was born, when that child was a newborn baby, that child didn't hold any significance to my friend. Zero. It was just another child born in the world. He didn't know anything about this child. Uh, it was just another child in the world. And then in an instant, almost two years later, when he found out that this child would be under his household, it was a game changer. He went from being just another child born in the world to being someone in an instant that he would throw himself in front of a bus if that's, if that's what was required. He became his child in an instant. He was afforded all the benefits and privileges of a child who was, who was naturally born to his household. And so I had this fascination that I'd never contemplated before. There was no ramping up to love. There was no, you know, learning to love someone, kind of like you do in a dating relationship. Like, maybe I'll, maybe I'll like him, maybe I won't, we'll see. And, you know, that's, you know, many of you probably have stories like that. I didn't like him at first. <laughs> I learned to love him. Not so, not so with this, this relationship, right? It wasn't so. Immediately, he went from stranger to fully loved in an instant. And I was just, that just blew me away. And I love that because of the biblical significance that holds to you and I as adopted children of, of the king. In an instant, we go from strangers, aliens, uh, to fully grafted in members of the household of God with all the benefits, all the privileges, all the inheritance, everything as a, quote, natural-born son, even though Jesus wasn't born, okay? I'm not Jehovah's Witness. That's what they believe, that he was a created being. So again, so fascinated by that. And that's what is huge about Paul identifying us as a part of God's household. Again, all that baggage that's carried over from the Old Testament into the New, he's saying, you are part of that household now. In an instant, regardless of your background, doesn't matter that you're a Gentile, doesn't matter that you are a sinner, because <laughs> you are, right? You're now part of God's household, okay? And afforded all the rights and privileges as any other of his children, Jesus Christ, have. Any thoughts or questions, comments, observations uh, about household? Gene. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah. Because he chose the moment when we agreed to repent before it. Yeah. That's why every, every analogy breaks down after, uh, so you don't want to run it all on four, four legs, right? And so that, so we, this is the, that's, the, that's the, the analogy that works. What's that? I think it does. It does. Because again, you, were, you weren't chosen because one day something happened and God said, okay, I do love you now. You were chosen before the foundation of the world, but in terms of our perspective, in terms of the legal declaration, you know, we went from strangers and aliens in an instant to being fully accepted. In an instant. 
Uh, and that's our perspective. That's as, as we see it. And that is, that's nothing short of miraculous. You know, orphans to princes, to, 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 to fellow heirs with Christ. Uh, that's, that's extraordinary. And, and again, that's, that's the position that you have to realize as a Christian, is that you don't have to work up to God's favor. That declaration is made, you are declared righteous because of the righteousness of Christ draped over you. We are sanctified. We're going through a sanctifying process for the rest of our lives, being made more and more whole. But in terms of the legal declaration, you are justified in an instant. The moment you put your trust in Christ, children, in his household, man, you could, you could just bask in that for the rest of, the rest of your life and never wrap your mind around the, the glory that that is. That's amazing. That's amazing. Someone else? Thoughts, comments, questions? I love it. I just love it. I can't get over it. I can't get over it. It's just, it's amazing. That's household. That's the household that you are part of. Uh, so let's, uh, let's pick up in the middle of verse 19 now. Uh, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the household you're part of isn't something that's part of uh, something that's just suspended in the air, right? It's not like a hammock. Uh, it has a foundation. Even a, even a hammock has a foundation, really. It, it's built upon something. It's built, this household is built upon something, the same way a deck is, mind you. It, it's, yeah. it's not made out of gold, I can assure you that. It's built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And for your loving gift of $110,000, I will... No, okay. Now, there are a couple of different understandings of the term apostles and prophets here that I just want to point out really quick. The first, the first understanding is that uh, what Paul is referring to is uh, the apostles of the New Testament and the prophets of the Old Testament. That's one understanding, okay? The other understanding, which I might favor, is the, is the household of God being built upon the New Testament apostles and the New Testament prophets, that Paul is strictly speaking in the foundation established in the, the New Testament. Again, it's the idea of what's unfolding in the New Testament. It's not that the, the words of the prophets of the Old Testament don't matter anymore. Quite the contrary. Rather, the Old Testament prophets, their whole ministry was devoted to prophesying about what would happen in the New. Okay? Everything in the New Testament is a fulfillment of what was spoken in the Old. So Christ is building this household of faith upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets of the New Testament that they are laying. Remember what Christ said to Peter. This is from Matthew 16, 18. Jesus says this, and I tell you, uh, you are Peter. You're the rock. Petros, right? Well, that's uh, Petros. That's, that's Latin, I think. Uh, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, did you hear what he's telling Peter? Peter, I'm going to build my church, my household of faith on you. And this is where Roman Catholics get the idea that Peter was the first pope because they believe that Jesus is specifically talking to and only uh, specifically to Peter. Uh, there were other apostles present when they had that conversation. And not only that, Paul clears it up for us right here in Ephesians. The foundation of the church the, the, the household of faith was built upon the apostles and prophets. And, and I get into a little bit of trouble every time we come across this verse, because this is why I don't believe there are any prophets anymore, or apostles for that matter. You know, no prophets in the sense that, that we, they speak the revelation of God like the prophets and the apostles did in the Bible. So whenever I hear someone say, God told me, I get a little apprehensive 
because I, I don't know specifically what they're talking about. I don't know if they're talking about God told me as I read in the scriptures, and I'm just relaying it to you that way, or are you saying God is telling you something that is spoken to you brand new, not ever before seen in the scriptures? Uh, because I say, well, wait a minute, let's, let's talk about that. What are, you, what are you saying there? Why would he tell you something? If you're saying you're, you're, you're now a, a prophet or an apostle, um, and you're receiving a brand new revelation that is not previously in the scriptures before, why would he tell you this, but not one of his original apostles, not one of his original prophets, in which the foundation of the church, as Paul is telling us here, is built upon. Okay? The foundational period of the church was built by the apostles and prophets of the New Testament. You only build the foundation once, one time. You don't go back and rebuild the foundation. And if you do, it means there's trouble. It means something has gone wrong. And God, in all his wisdom, gave those New Testament saints the authority to speak divine revelation until they could put those revelations down on paper for the rest of us to read in his holy word. And once it was down on paper, the foundation was laid and it was done. No more, no more foundation building. What the apostles and prophets said that was directly commissioned by God, by Christ himself, and beyond that, that's it. That's it. No more. We have our divine revelation. We have our scripture. We have, we have our portion of divine utterance. Now, how do we know they got it right? How do we know they got it right? How do we know that there isn't more to be said? How do we know that what they said and what they put on the paper was the absolute right and final thing? How do we know the prophets and apostles of the, of the New Testament got it right? How do we know? Are we just going on faith? Is, is what they said, is what the apostles and prophets of the New Testament, is what they said uh, based on something else? Who? Christ. Jesus Christ himself. Uh, sorry, I, I was trying to get you there, but you got good. Good, you got there. You got there. <laughs> Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Do you know what a cornerstone is? Okay, a lot of us, when we think about cornerstones, we think that's a dedicatory stone that they put in the corner of the building. Said so this build, building was built in 1890 or whatever. Uh, but that's not the, the imagery that Paul is trying to, to conjure up here. Do you ever watch uh, any kind of home improvement television, HGTV, or uh, you watch those kind of things? Uh, I, I, you, I can really go down a rabbit hole with those. But if you watch those kind of shows or see my videos on YouTube, you hear from time to time a reference of a cornerstone, okay? In the true sense of what a cornerstone is. Uh, and so you have to understand a little bit about architecture back in the biblical era to truly appreciate what's being said here. Nowadays, when they're building a, a foundation for a home, they use concrete and they pour it and they make it so it's exactly level. So that's one of the benefits of poured concrete is that when you pour something and you liquid, it comes down, it comes out level. All right. It should conform itself to the surface of the of the the, the, the wherever it's being poured, and it, but come out level. OK, but but back in Paul's day, they didn't have cement trucks that would roll up on a, on a job site, believe it or not. Instead, you'd use stones for your foundation. And if you've ever built a stone structure in your backyard, like maybe uh, something that you'd, you'd want, you want to build for a, a barbecue pit or a, uh, a raised flower bed made out of stone like that, if you want it to come up so it appears that the, a mailbox is another one. You can see mailboxes. You go all down Hillsborough Road, and you'll see some that are nice stone mailboxes, you know, perfect like this, but you see some others that are <laughs> like that. You know why that is? Do you know why they ended up like that? The foundation, but specifically the cornerstone. 
Okay, so your first layer that you're going to be building, let's say, brick upon, the very first stone that you place has to be done exactly right. It has to be exactly plumb. It has to be exactly level because you know why? Because you're going to set a stone right beside that and you're going to set a stone right beside that over here. And when you make this perfect sort of rectangular structure, if that first stone is off, it's going to set everything else off so that if you're slightly going uphill just even a little bit because that first stone is off, guess what? Your whole structure is going to be going up sideways. It's going to be, it's going to be tilting a little bit. And so when he says that, that Christ is the cornerstone, Christ is the cornerstone. He's the one that's perfectly level. He's the one that's perfectly plumb, if I could say that. And the trajectory he set was exactly right for the stones, the rocks that were set adjacent to him, which are the apostles and prophets. So he's the cornerstone, is what Paul is telling us. And the apostles and prophets that came with him, that formed that foundation, we know that what they say is exactly right because they're set with his trajectory in mind. They're set with his with his uh, uh, wisdom in mind, okay? And he directly commissioned those apostles and prophets by his own word, by his own mouth. They didn't declare themselves to be apostles and prophets. They were directly commissioned by Christ. You are going to be my apostle. You are going to be my spokesperson. And that's one of the, it's one of the requirements of being an apostle uh, or a prophet is that you're directly commissioned by God himself, okay? You are, you're saying the words that are set forth by that cornerstone, the one that is perfectly level, perfectly plumb, the one in whom there is no error. And that forms the foundation of the church, that everything else is built upon, the windows, the walls, the doors, everything else built upon that foundation. That's why we say we don't go back and rebuild the foundation. It is set. So everything else that you and I want to talk about, everything else that you and I want to, to, to pontificate about, and insofar as, as the Word of God is concerned, it's been set for us. So if I come in here one day and I say, I've got a new revelation for you guys. We're going to go build a deck. <laughs> you should say, no, no, there's no new revelations. That foundation has been set. What we have here with us is the word of God, and that's what we build our life upon. Okay? Therefore, and again, really quick Old Testament imagery, Isaiah 28, 14. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. In other words, again, Paul is not just saying, what's good imagery I could use here? Uh, how about, ah, I got it, cornerstone. No, he's, he's drawing on Old Testament imagery and language. Psalm 118, 21, 22. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone cornerstone uh, this is amazing to me i love this this is uh it's just it's like breathtaking um oh actually that is that uh, paul jesus himself makes reference to this verse in matthew 21 42 that christ is the cornerstone which the foundation of the church is built and again where is all of history headed where is all history headed when it's all said and done? Revelation 21, 14, and on the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the lamb. That's the foundation. The foundation of the apostles and prophets built the foundation of the church. Does that make sense to you? Does that make, does that, is that clear? And again, why we're using terms like cornerstone? And oh my goodness, we're, we're running out of time here and I still gotta talk about temple. Uh, any questions before we continue or comments, observations? Is that clear? 
do you love that? I mean, that's amazing. That's amazing to me. Again, not just, not just the fact that uh, it's, a great, it's great imagery, but that it is Old Testament imagery. And that's how we know we're not getting a, uh, a bunch of uh, new stuff that someone just dreamed up one day. It's based upon the, the, the words and wisdom of Christ. Really quickly, though, the word temple. Again, temple, when you, when you start to think about that in terms of Old Testament context, you, you, you prob- your mind probably immediately goes to what? The temple. <laughs> the temple. And what was the first temple in the Old Testament? The garden. The garden was the first temple. Okay? And you think about what temple is not only as a structure, but as a concept. What is a temple? What, what's the intent of a temple or a tabernacle? What is it? Sacred place where what happens? Where what? Where God dwells and who else is there? His household. It's a temple. The concept of temple is a, is a dwelling place of God where he can commune and interact with his people. So what is a garden? Garden was the first place, not just where things grow, not just where work happens. Certainly those things happen, but it was the first place where God interacted with man. And who was the first priest? It was Adam. Adam was the first, it was, it was the first one that, was between, that went between God and man. Okay? And so in that respect, the garden was a temple. And again, everything, if for those of you that have ever gone through uh, Nancy Guthrie's Bible study, that's what this is, this is all about. It's about a return to not just the garden, but better than the garden. It started out as, as, as communion with God, and it's, and it's been slowly progressing, tabernacle, temple, and then ultimately being fulfilled in Jesus Christ, okay? Uh, Noah's Ark. Was Noah's Ark just a, a giant nautical vessel, or was it a floating temple. It was a dwelling place where God, it was where God preserved his people. Uh, And outside of that floating temple, there are three sections to the ark. There are three sections to the temple. Outside of that floating ark, what would you find? You found judgment. You were judged by the waters, but you were protected in the temple of God in the ark, okay? And so all these things, all these Old Testament imagery, it's coming together. And so when Paul uses words like temple, uh, he's, he's really pulling all this stuff out, all at once together. Uh, you get to Ezekiel, and Ezekiel details for us in chapters 40 to 48, a perfect temple, as he describes it, in every manner. Uh, and what you have to realize is that right up until the time of Christ, or really the time after Christ, the people would hear and read about and assume he was talking about a temple of brick and mortar. Someone like Ezekiel was talking about brick and mortar. No, that's not what he was talking about. Fast forward to John chapter 2. He's talking about a temple built out of living stones. Uh, Let me go next. Yeah. Jesus answered them saying, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus Christ is the temple. It's not a physical building. It's the building made out of living stones, whereby Jesus is the chief cornerstone and the apostles and prophet form the foundation and the rest of the structure. Who comprises the rest of the structure? Who? We do. We We are part of it. We are part of that structure. Do you not know, 1 Corinthians 3.16, that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Is that describing you or, or a temple? It's the same imagery where the spirit dwells. That's a temple. 
you're part of that temple now. You're part of the toilet. The dwelling place of God is you. First Peter 2, 4 to 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Again, not a building out of brick and mortar, but the spirit of God himself would dwell in us we're the living stones that make up God's final dwelling place. And that's probably a good place to, to, to put a, a stop. But uh, again, all this imagery, it's just, I just, it's so fascinating. And I, I love uh, that we get to read through stuff like this and make these kind of connections that otherwise, <laughs> ah, if not for the Spirit of God giving us the word, the foundation of the apostles and prophets laying these words down for us, how would we know this? How would we know? We wouldn't. We wouldn't get to know it. Thoughts, final comments. Who wants to close us off with a final comment, thought, or, uh, yes? I don't think it's an accident that God used Paul, who was such a learned rabbi and, and such a scholar mm -hmm. of the Old Testament, to write these. As a Jew of the Jews. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to then primarily be the witness to the Gentiles. A Jew of Jew, you know, to be able to say, look, I understand all this, this uh, Old Testament baggage. And listen, here's what it means to you. And here's why it's such benefit to you, a Gentile, who previously were aliens, who previously were on the outside of that commonwealth. You are now part of it. Take my word for it. I'm, I'm the Jew of Jews. And he was also the Gentile of Gentiles, by the way. He was, he was the perfect representative to bring forth the, the gospel to the, to the rest of the world. Someone else? Anything else? All right, let's, let's put a pause. Again, any, any other comments, thoughts, or questions that you have that you want to bring to me afterwards, I'd love to entertain those, whether through email, in person, or a phone call, whatever. I'm always happy to do that, but uh, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for uh, what you've built and, and how you've built it. This isn't something built in haste or built by reaction, but something that was carefully designed and thought of and, uh, and, and, and built upon over the ages. And not just over the last 2,000 years, but through all of history, you've built for us uh, these, uh, this structure uh, that is your church, uh, built on the foundation that is Jesus Christ. Help us to remember that. Help us to know that we don't, we don't stand on our own. Uh, we don't uh, walk around based on our own righteousness or our own strength, but the cornerstone of Jesus Christ and the foundation that he laid for us. That's where our, our, our hope and our foundation our, and our salvation comes from. We thank you for him. Uh, help us to understand this, know it, and then share it with the world that needs to hear it. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. All right, we'll see you in church.